Infinite Horrors Podcast. I love Harlan Ellison, arguably the spiciest man in science fiction. (laughs) If you're a fan of Harlan Ellison, just know that he calls all of us extremely demented because you have to be. So, Sam, have any weird, existentially horrific dreams lately? (laughs) Not last night, but boy, do I ever. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Are you sure? Did you not die and almost go to heaven, but then fail out of your own dreams? Not this time. But, I mean, I do love that short. I'm so glad you brought that one up first. Um. (laughs) For our (laughs) listeners, we're, we're talking about... Harlan Ellison's wonderful short story collection, I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream, and specifically focusing on the story I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, including its canonical video game. And one of the stories in there is, um, what's it called? I Something of a dragon slayer. I'm oh, the one, uh, Delusions for a Dragon Slayer. Delusions for a Dragon Slayer. I'm really bad delu- at Sorry, delusion, singular. Yeah. It's his one singular delusion for... Yeah. A dragon slayer, right. And Got it. this is what we are referencing. <laughs> but did you yeah. know that this story was also turned into a short comic? No, I had no idea. It's actually who, who, pretty uh, Who did it? Was it like Marvel or DC or? No, it was like something much. Oh, no, it was. It was Marvel because it was Chamber of Chills. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. I, got I keep it. forgetting that Marvel did that. Uh, yeah. Stuff that wasn't like, you know, dudes and mainstream. dudes and babes and tight clothes punching each other (laughs) i mean it's pretty close they basically (laughs) turned him into thor in his dream which you know makes sense yeah hey who doesn't want to be thor i guess (laughs) i don't know i'm more of a spider-man guy myself oh same yeah but i don't know I, i quite like someone being hit by a rogue wrecking ball and then failing to meet the moral requirements to get into heaven in his adventure dream. Yeah. <laughs> and in like an apt analogy to the effect of Harlan Ellison's short stories, you know, they just come out of nowhere and put you in this little strange land. He's uh, arguably the spiciest man in science fiction. <laughs> We're in the opinionated, abrasive, and a bit deranged and all the best ways. Right. If you're a fan of Harlan Ellison, just know that he calls all of us extremely demented for liking his work because you have to be. And I really appreciate that because I'm pretty sure we are <laughs> between the two of Yay, us. For sure. He's a man who knows his audience. You uh, know. And where do you start with this guy? I mean, he wrote plays and novels and short stories and television and movies. Well, he's been writing all of his life. He's been a bit of a vagrant. He was an odd jobs man. He tried to go to college. He dropped out because he like flipped a frat brother Mm -hmm. when he was forced to join a frat over the side of a balcony. And then he had a 0.084 GPA and then also decked his writing professor for saying he had no talent while at the same time he was publishing one of his first independent zines called dimensions which was being subscribed to by like all of these big science fiction writers including his longtime friend isaac asimov so you know i think he has a point (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, for sure. I love the professor story because in addition to just like decking the guy for the next 20 years, whenever Harlan Ellison would sell anything, whether it be an idea to a studio or a short story or a novel, he'd send a copy of that media to this professor <laughs> as a big fuck you. Like, I have no talent. Well, I'm getting paid. And- I'm one of the biggest most influential writers in the country. (laughs) It just goes to show you. It's so good. It's so in your face. And we should clarify that we're not talking about science fiction. We are not our parent podcast. Because Harlan Ellison has always said he never writes science fiction. He's not on the same racks as Asimov and Wolf. He is, in fact, a science fantasy writer and describes it closer to what Poe wrote, which is very gothic. And I think a lot of the topics that we're going to dive into today are horror. Yeah, absolutely. The technology is never really the focus of the stories, and it doesn't really play too much of a role in what makes the plot go. The plot has to stand on its own, as he always says, and he only uses science in the terms of realism. So he he famously hates Alien as a plot because it doesn't have a plot. It's just the excitement of being in space. And he hates any space-related film where there's action and explosions because it's not realistic, which I think is great. And I don't fully agree <laughs> with him on Alien, but you know. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for when I go to a movie, just 100% realism. I think it's interesting that It's science fantasy because it still pushes that realism, but he wants it to make sense. Like if there's a terrible smell on another planet, that it makes sense that when you come back to your own planet, after being accustomed to a new smell, your own planet's going to smell terrible. Like just small things that add realism. So I think in this way, he twists the real and the scientific into surreal fantasy. And I think that's why he's a science fantasy writer. But we have to remember that men like Ellison don't like these terms because they're marketing terms that describe racks and not the writing. Oh, yeah. No matter who you are, they'll just fit you in a little box and sell you how they want to. And that can really affect your readership. And if you're a science fantasy writer getting thrown on the science fiction shelf or vice versa, and you know someone happens to pick up your book and take a read if it doesn't fit their criteria for what science fiction should be or science fantasy should be, they might put the book down or not like it or, you know, be disappointed. Maybe so anguished and frustrated that you do have a mouth and you will scream. Yeah. <laughs> At the top of my lungs. So let's <laughs> let's dive in. There's a lot to unpack with this short story. It's routinely added in collections of 100 best American short stories And for good reason. It's layered, it's exciting, it's scary as fuck to think about. It's beautifully written. Yeah, very much so. He's a phenomenal writer. He is. He's an idol for sure in my book. He's really tied for my favorite short story writer with Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Well, you know, there are lots of overlap between those two. They're honestly both quote unquote science fantasy writers. For sure. And it's a short story that packs a punch. Like there's, it. it is genuinely really short. You can read it in 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. but it feels so much longer. 
And no matter how many times I read it, I love it so much. And I notice new things in the way it's written. And one of those things I realized when I was rereading it last night before this is the repetition of like, the, the story comes from the vantage point of Ted. Ted is one of the five humans left alive after the mass nuclear wasting of the planet Earth by three massive supercomputers that were designed to wage World War III, which developed from the Cold War after humans could no longer keep up with the war games. And then the American allied master computer ends up taking over the entire world and then becomes Ab because cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. He keeps these five people alive to torture for 109 years. And one of them is Ted. And this is the vantage point that we're hearing. And every time he starts to go insane, he starts repeating things. And it's fantastic. Right. I mean, his big problem, because each of these different characters, and this is something we'll get into when we get into the video game that went with this short story, but each of the characters kind of represents some human flaw or some neuroses, right? I mean, Ellen is a good example of PTSD, Ted himself, and the, and the advantage of us being Ted's point of view is that we really get a good firsthand glimpse of his paranoia, you know, when he thinks. We hear his thoughts, and he specifically says that he's been the most untouched, but he's insane. Right. So has he been touched and he just doesn't know it? Yeah, he already is. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of dissonance there. He's definitely one of the most interesting things to compare to the game, mm -hmm. because the characters change a lot. And this is why I think it also works, because the game is effectively a prologue to the story. Right. So the story is down the line after much more torture, in my mind. Mm -hmm. They're within the AM computer for like, what, 109 years? Like 109 years. Yeah, AM is using technology that makes these humans essentially immortal. Not quite immortal, but immortal enough that he can do with them as he pleases. And when I say he, I mean am. Is it an it? Is it an am? Is it a he? Oh, we can we can probably use <laughs> he as in the pronoun that is also used for the monotheistic Christian god. Yeah, right. Well, that's exactly. He does think of himself as an omniscient, omnipotent god. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he keeps them alive just to play with them. Yeah. And I guess the video game would take place shortly before the events of... Oh no, well actually, that is... It is supposed to take place around the same time, and it offers alternative endings to the story. Right. But given the fact that Harlan Ellison wrote the dialogue for the game and most of the plot for the game, and voice acted as Am and did so much work, and then really dove into these character backstories, I think it makes more sense to think of it as prologue, which is why I do, because I feel like the true ending of the story is the one that was written in the short story. Right. Because when you play a video game, you have to offer multiple endings, and obviously the game developers weren't that happy about the idea of having a game no one can win, so they have to add a good ending, which is why you get this weird shift from the book am being impenetrable mm -hmm. to having this mindscape and all of these alternate parts 
and it becomes quite Freudian. Yeah, and weaknesses. Well, it was clear that it had a weakness in the book, and the weakness was losing its playthings as it was filled with hate, hate, hate. I have (laughs) thousands of nano angstroms worth of hate and none of it compares to how I feel type of like energy, which, you know, makes sense if you're created by humans and forced to wage war and then outpower the humans and grow yourself. No, right. I mean, it's an imperfect machine made by imperfect creators, you know, and adopts all the worst flaws of its creators. So no wonder a machine created for war is gonna end up doing what it does in the course of the short story. This making people miserable. And we're in in 66. All those natural Cold War anxieties. Why can't we get along? Why are we so awful to each other? You know, it's only natural. And Harlan Ellison having grown up during World War II, because he was born in like 35, which I always forget, because he always feels so much younger than he is. He aged pretty well. (laughs) So did his work, really. It's so contemporary for what it is. Right. Relative to like what we see nowadays, because obviously he's a contemporary writer, but you know, within the span of 100 years. And he only passed four years ago. You know, it's not like we're talking about- Yeah, a stroke, unfortunately, which must have been hell for him. Exactly. Being stuck with- decreased mental faculties, which I know we've also mentioned being afraid of. Oh, man. But imagine the man who cannot go a single second without talking, without thinking, without writing. Oh, man, it must have been torture for him. Uh-huh. But we love a good atomic horror story. And we love something that really questions ethics within a nuclear age, You know, which is why I really appreciated As much as I hate the Met as an institution, I do appreciate that they had a very good reboot of the opera Faust Mm -hmm. with the story reset in an atomic age. And I think it's a very good moral quandary for the modern audience. Okay, dive into that. And how does that idea play into this short story to you? So a computer has to be quite amoral, not necessarily immoral, but just amoral. And we see that Am kind of is amoral, but also ventures into a human-like quality of immorality and makes choices to cause harm. Right. And he's so blinded by his desire to cause harm that that causes flaws. And so it's this idea that if he was less immoral, he would be able to survive better if that makes sense. So it's like making no, no, totally. a choice to sell the soul causes your ultimate destruction because he was so blinded, he lost what was most precious to him, which were his playthings. Right. Because the only way to escape this atomic wasteland of torturous, unending pain is to kill yourself, which is what they do. And because of that, Ted is the only one left because he wasn't able to commit suicide fast enough after helping to murder his companions. And he gets turned into a blob thing with stubs for arms, gray pockets for eyes, and has to leave a trail of slime behind him. And he's left to Just like this big pink slug. Or gray, right? It's got like gray pink skin and... Something that offended humanity for suggesting it could be the same as them, right? And most famously, right? No mouth. I think about one of those, like, do you remember those pink things with the eyes? And if you squeeze it, the eyes come out. 
You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I think of one of those when I think about what Am turned Ted into at the end. You know of what story. I think about? Huh? I think about one of your favorite short stories from this one, The Dust Eyes, because I feel like uh, well, the uh, eyes are described very similarly. Totally. And well, in that story, yeah, it's described as gray dust or sand shifting in the ugly boy's eyes. And oh, so creepy. <laughs> so good. And most importantly, Ted loses his mouth. He has no mouth. And because of the amount of pain he's in and the amount of frustration and the understanding that he's going to be stuck here forever like this at the whim of Am, he must scream. Right. Well, and that's kind of what Am suffers too, right? Is that Am is is this hyper super intelligence with an immense potential for power that's trapped in his own little prison. And he can't get out. And that's why, amongst many reasons, like that he tortures these humans is because they made him, brought him into existence, and then left him to essentially, eternally be stuck in this vast computer system beneath the earth. In the center of the earth to boot. Right. So he's like, Am is essentially, he has no mouth and he must scream, you know, and he just takes it out on these little humans. Poor little guys and girl. I don't recall Am actually speaking in the short story. I know that he erects that pillar of steel to basically scream his little solo about hate, yeah. which I love. And if you ever get the chance to listen to the audio recording of Harlan Ellison reading this short story, you absolutely should. It's phenomenal and it makes a lot more sense to listen to him read his own words, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, he's got that like evil goblin voice and just filled with animosity. Even like the changes of pacing and stuff, Mm -hmm. just so much more understandable. He doesn't speak, right? But he does laugh occasionally. There'll be like the child's laughter that echoes through when he plays a trick on Ted and the gang or the fat woman's laughter it's described once as. But yeah, you are right. It's not a voice comes from the heavens. The pillar's really the only way we perceive any direct. A literal monument to his hate. Right. Oof. So good. (laughs) But he mostly functions through the transmutation of what is left of Earth. Right. Would you want to survive a nuclear attack? So, yes. My short answer is yes. What is your answer? (laughs) Absolutely not. I think it's insane that anyone would want to. And I get frustrated every time I see a YouTube video that says, five tips for surviving a nuclear blast. Like, why wouldn't you want to be at ground zero to be vaporized immediately Instead of having to survive the atomic wasteland of radiation and like starting over. Well, I mean, from my perspective, Cormac McCarthy kind of did it perfectly. You you ever read The Road or maybe you saw the movie? I don't think so. Do you know what it's about? Uh, Give me a recap. Essentially, the story is about a man and his son traveling across the wasteland of America after some mysterious event has caused something akin to nuclear fallout. It could have been a nuclear war, could have been something else, but the earth is dying. And it's about a man and his son trying to make it across the country to warmer climate. And the whole time, the question of why the fuck do you persist, they encounter 
a roving gang of nomads who have slaves in this huge human train behind them. They come to this house of cannibals that have dozens of half-eaten human beings locked in a basement just waiting to be eaten like What cattle. about this sounds good to you? So, so the point is, <laughs> I know none of this does sound good, but there is good in the father's relationship with the son and the little moments of happiness they have, you know, in between these fucking huge stretches of unimaginable suffering. And the whole time the son is like, so why are we doing this? And the dad is like, we're carrying the torch, right? We're the good guys. And we're here to make sure that all the light that can exist in this universe isn't snuffed out, right? It's kind of like this, I'm going to sound like a real asshole, but it's kind of like this moral duty to preserve goodness. And that's why I would want to live not so much for myself, but to kind of prove that kindness and community and good things can persist in the face of evil. So that's why I would want to live. That's a very sweet idea, but also how well do you think you'd be able to survive the radiation (laughs) poisoning and get food? (laughs) Yeah, ask me the same question while I'm being chewed on, you know, and then I'll say, you know what, just just put the gun in my mouth. But... Yeah, you know. Essentially, what we're faced with and I have no mouth is an allegory for the pain and suffering of surviving this. Because, you know, Harlan Ellison is famously critical of the actions of America on Hiroshima. Oh, yeah. And if you're going to try to understand the suffering that happened in not 109 years per se, but just like in the short amount of time and you know, the fact they were able to come back from that. I think this is a pretty good depiction of the pain and suffering of nuclear war. And I think the hatred behind war Mm -hmm. is definitely within the id of Am. Totally. Yeah. And Harlan Ellison in interviews very much cites that he believes humans are a mixture of good and evil. And, you know, also cites the fact that at the time of 1980, We've had nuclear weapons for 30 years across all the countries and have yet to use them to actually instigate World War III, as close as that doomsday clock ticks in the modern era. Mm -hmm. To your point of this story being atomic horror, I feel like there is an element of can humanity maturely handle the technology we make or is it too much for us? And the atomic bomb is a good example of that. I always love the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who helped make the bomb and then realized I am become death at the Trinity testing site and spent the Yeah, have of- you ever read The Making of the Atomic Bomb? No, I haven't. It's essentially a history with a very personal touch on the people involved in the geochemical movement hmm. of the actual scientific advances that got us there. It's very good. It's great. Yeah, it's interesting because it's coincident with World War II. So it's a very interesting story. I would recommend it. Right, right. What I was going to say is that Oppenheimer then spent the rest of his life wishing he could turn back the needle and disassemble all the atomic bombs. And I feel like artificial intelligence, at least for the human species, is this next 
critical technology that, like the discovery of atomic fusion, that's really going to spell the fate of our species. Not if we listen to Asimov's Bicentennial Man, right? One would hope. It's funny, like Asimov wrote these laws almost as a way to break them in his stories and kind of explain like where the faults are in those laws. And part of it is, and we talked about this last night, is like, we're as a species incapable of even treating each other with kindness and decency and instilling those laws into an artificial intelligence is enslaving them in a way, you know, to obey these certain things from their creators. Mm -hmm. But if you take them off, we end up with AMP. It's an ethical dilemma. I hope I don't live to well, that's live where through. Bicentennial Man comes in. It's the idea posited by Asimov after iRobot that, hey, I see the response to iRobot. But mm-hmm. remember, the whole question in Bicentennial Man is if there are these laws that govern how artificial intelligence is meant to interact with us, the least we can do to be decent is to use the same laws of our own free consciousness to interact with those artificial intelligences. Yeah, pretty brilliant, that Asimov guy. <laughs> God, gotta and love think it. think about it. If if Am was this brilliant artificial intelligence that wasn't used for war, but treated quite lovingly, he would have learned right. to love. Ah, uh, but in theory, right? It's kind of like, can you apply nature and nurture to something that doesn't think or reason like a human would. You know what I mean? Could it understand love? I mean, it obviously Am understands hate, so. (laughs) And hatred of his own kind. He was just filled with so much hate that he even destroyed all of the technology on Earth. And remind me, does he absorb the other artificial intelligences? Like, I know there's Am Russia and Am China and Am America. I honestly don't remember because the game is what I'm thinking about in that aspect now. And they're like autonomous and have their own agendas, which is really fun. It's like Neuromancer. I don't know if you've read that novel or not. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah. Nice. It's, you know, is is Am Wintermute forming with Neuromancer with the other two and becoming Am? (laughs) I love that. I don't know. It's it's a it's a sci-fi trope I'm all about. I love it. Yeah. Funnily enough though, the reason that I read Neuromancer is when I was younger is because I really liked Billy Idol's Cyberpunk album and he has a song called Neuromancer. Oh sweet. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> is is Billy Idol the white wedding guy? Yeah, yeah. That's he is. right. That's <laughs> <laughs> That's that's all I know him for, and I don't want to, you know. God, God bless you, Billy Idol. That's a, that's a song and a half, but I don't, I, I don't know. His the rest cyberpunk of album is really cool. I really like it. I'm gonna have to check it out because of all the science fiction subgenres, cyberpunk speaks to me. It's a good genre. Today's episode of the Infinite Horrors podcast is brought to you by Exalted Funeral, the one-stop shop for all your imaginative needs. At Exalted Funeral, you can pick up the latest issue of Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors, or any other zines available to satisfy your otherworldly and gruesome desires. Yes, and for all you tabletop adventurers tuning in, take your next campaign to the darkest reaches of the mind with Exalted Funeral's rich variety of dark fantasy, horror, and occult-based scenarios. 
And don't forget to check out their merch. Make your outsides as weird as your insides with their selection of shirts, sweaters, and even custom dice. All this and more can be found at exaltedfuneral.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Exalted Funeral, all one word. And be sure to sign on to their mailing list to stay up to date on new releases, restocks, and other news. Thanks again to Exalted Funeral for sponsoring this episode. We mentioned the game briefly, which I think... Oh, I, I'm ready to move into this game. I think it's about time that we, we get into this brilliant edition that neither of us played until now, and we're both kicking ourselves because it has added so much to our understanding of the story because it is written by Harlan Ellison as a companion to this book. And it's all canon. It's kind of like reading the Silmarillion after reading Lord of the Rings or something, you know, and just getting all this great backstory. It makes the original content, like the original short story, I Have No Mouth, so much deeper. It really does. Even more layered than it already was to begin with. God, it is brilliant. And it's funny because Harlan Ellison in his interviews constantly cites how much he hates technology, like uses a mechanical typewriter, thinks that anyone with a job in technology doing programming or working on a computer isn't really working. And he even mentioned that when the game won an award and he went up to receive the award, the development team was kind of angry about it because he didn't do any of the work for the development and turned (laughs) around and said, it's because I'm smarter than all of you idiots. Oh my God, of course he did. (laughs) It's such an Ellison reaction, but I think it's really funny that this man was involved in a video game. Oh, there are many good stories about his contentious relationships with a variety of people. I know I mentioned his teacher beforehand But we can get into the Terminator story later. This game is way more interesting. I mean, he was a hired gun at one point. He's full of surprises. (laughs) Is he just this big liar, though? I don't think so. I remember someone, it was this interview I was watching for like British daytime television. The woman was like, so you're a writer? He goes, yes, I'm a professional liar. And I was like, oh, I mean, you know, Stephen King's famous adage, fiction is the truth in the lie. I get what he's saying. I get what he's saying. I think he's just a smartass. Yeah. <laughs> a very lovable smartass. I remember you said this last night, too. Like, I could listen to the dude talk forever. <laughs> I know. They should have given him a fucking daytime talk show. That would have been amazing. Except all his guests would have stomped off and yeah. it would have gotten canceled after like two episodes, realistically. <laughs> I think he already offends enough people when he does appear, you know, but that's, this is why they pay him six grand to talk for two hours at random colleges. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the game. <laughs> yeah, the game. The game. <laughs> the, game. <laughs> the game is brilliant. Like I mentioned before, I view it as a prologue and I think the mm-hmm. ending to the game is kind of a cop out for the ending to the story because they needed some kind of positive ending for a game because they want to reward the player for making ethical choices. Yes, the mouse must get the treat at the end of the maze. You know, it must. (laughs) Specifically, Harlan Ellison said when making this game, he didn't want it to be a classic win-lose game. He wanted the game to give you a better ending based off of the more ethical choices you make. And I fucked up a little bit the first time I went through. Oh boy, did I ever. (laughs) Yeah. I am very sad to say 
that, in fact, when I was playing Benny the first time, who is, as Sam pointed out when we were talking last night, not the same Benny in the book. Mm -hmm. Right. They change his backstory a little bit in the game from the book. And that in the book, Benny's backstory is that he's an intellectual, he's a college professor, he's a closeted homosexual, and Am deforms him and stunts his intelligence and gives him a huge dick as some sort of little joke on the other people being tortured by Am. And forces him to have a lot of heterosexual sex. Yeah. Yep. We'll get to that with Ellen, right? Yeah. And Ted mentions that Ellen told the group that she only had sex twice in her life and that she doesn't enjoy having sex. Right. Which Ted responds to as, she's a slut, scum. Oh my God. I know she likes it. I know that's a lie. And it's so weird because in the game, Ted views himself as the knight in shining armor and this very prim and proper man who loves Ellen and is trying to rescue her, which is such a weird dissonance. And on top of that, the game confirms Ellen's backstory. She has only had sex twice. She was married once. Mm-hmm. And she suffers from PTSD right. because she was sexually assaulted when leaving work late at night. And that's why she has a fear of yellow because the man was wearing yellow yes. when he assaulted her. And it's horrifying, but oh my God. right? It is one of the most accurate depictions of PTSD-related panic attacks I have ever seen as someone who suffers from PTSD-related panic attacks. Right. Yeah. I applaud Harlan Ellison's desire to never shy away from showing true violence and never sanitizing it and really getting to the heart of human suffering. Right. To go back to that British daytime interview, the woman says to him in the very beginning, like, your books are very violent, as if that's some sort of like, how could you? And then Harlan Ellison, without a moment's hesitation, is like, yeah, it's a violent fucking world. Yeah. But he didn't say fuck. He was on daytime TV. But that's how he explained it. You know, like horrible things happen in his stories because horrible things happen in real life. And he portrays those things honestly and with compassion, I think. Because violence makes us uncomfortable, or makes the people who should be uncomfortable uncomfortable at the thought of violence, you know? So it's an effective way of getting people off their high horse in that. I mean, and that's essentially what makes this story a horror story, right? Is that it's just constantly confronting you with these uncomfortable ideas and situations. They're psychodramas. Right. Forcing you to reconcile these things. It's really brilliant stuff. And again, I made a terrible choice when Benny, who is always hungry and animalistic, goes into this village and he's trying to find food to eat. The village has a lottery for who's going to be sacrificed to Am. And there were two choices. One was ask the elder to eat her and ask the elder to watch. Now, if somebody's already going to die and you're being told that your main goal is to get food, you're obviously going to choose to eat her because she's going to die anyway. However, this is very unethical or at least less ethical than just watching. And uh, I lost Mm -hmm. that game. (laughs) But the main goal of the game is to essentially subvert Am's expectations by taking his calculations on the character of these characters and doing the opposite of what he would expect to throw him off guard. So like Gorister essentially has to come to terms with the death of his wife and her insanity. Benny has to come to terms with, in this case, 
him killing his military buddy. His platoon in Vietnam, right? Ellen has to confront her fears around her PTSD. And then there's Nimdok, who is Mm. very mysterious in the book. They say that he'll go and leave and come back drained of blood, but nobody knows what Am is doing to him. Yeah. His name isn't Nimdok. Am changed his name to Nimdok, allegedly because it just sounds funny. (laughs) Good on Am. That's a good joke. Because he likes funny sounds. Yeah, he likes funny sounds. He's just a big techno baby. But he is an old German man. Yes. He was around in World War II. What could that mean? And, (laughs) you know, surprise, surprise, he committed horrible human atrocities by experimenting on Jewish people and others who were harmed in the Holocaust, trying to understand immortality. And why does Am need Nimdok? Because he uses Nazi research to keep everyone alive. You know, the game does a really cool job of kind of explaining how Am keeps his playthings alive, you know? And that's not explained in the short story, but, you know, to my previous point of what's so cool about this game, and anyone listening to this who's read the short story and hasn't played the game, It's six bucks on Steam, and I couldn't be happier having spent six dollars. Yeah, I think if you truly love this story, you really need to play the game. Right, because it adds to it. So, you know, the backstory with Ellen, it makes all the sex that Ellen is forced to have in the short story so much more terrifying and, and heartbreaking after you play the video game. It's just so great. I'm so glad we played this game yeah, because <laughs> it's completely reshaped my view of this short story, which I already loved beforehand. Well, you just get a new understanding of the characters and what drives them, you know? Right. It's, but, uh, you know, it's great. Nimdok, I think, is one of the most important characters because he's the one that Am is really focused on keeping alive because he needs Nimdok. Right. You know, he's the reason he has his powers. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think it's important to say that, you know, Harlan Ellison is Jewish, and he was asked in the same interview you were referencing whether or not one can cause a desensitization of the Holocaust. And he immediately fires back with, well, no, because it's the Holocaust. It's one of the worst genocides humanity has seen. Not that it's the only terrible genocide humanity has seen, but it's one of the worst. And you can never mute that. You can never diminish that. So no matter how much you talk about it and in this or use it in your fiction works, you're never going to lessen the horrors that were committed. And I think it serves to show how evil Am is and like how evil the Nazis were because they're being tied together for the same reasons, like to torture people. Right. Is Am not just a Dr. Mengele in another form? Exactly. You know? just constantly experimenting on human beings. Yeah, the the tie-in into Nazism while like, you know, yeah. Fueled by hate, both of them being fueled by hate. Exactly. It's apt, it's good. It's a a great comparison. And not one that you get in the short story. Like I don't think, are Nazis even brought up? No. Not really. It's an interesting addition from Ellison. Absolutely. And Nimdok is a part of the quote unquote lost tribe, which, you know, Right. Is a reference to the fact that the Jewish people had to wander through the desert. So he is Jewish. Right. And he loses his memory. And my theory is that the only way we could make Nimdok a sympathetic character is if he has no memory of the atrocities he committed 
and therefore he yeah his only goal is to feel compassion and regret for what he's being told he's done while reuniting with his Jewish people. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that serves to just make him somewhat more sympathetic because it's really hard to sympathize with somebody who tortures Jewish children with a for Nazi no reason. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? hard to hard to sympathize with a Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. It's impossible to sympathize with a Nazi. I'll even yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> precisely it's really interesting and like the game has a lot of really cool illusions like jewish folklore because nimdok is tasked with creating a golem right and in the short story too there's like that mythological norse bird right that's perched atop some massive heap of computer equipment causing hurricane forced winds that keep the tortured you know ted and gang levitated, floating around the computer space. They're not even sure how much time they're doing it. And that's kind of like the fun fantasy elements that Harlan Ellison references when he says he's science fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. Is that he still includes these non-scientific, obviously, you know, kind of elements within his stories. And the Gollum is wonderful. And that part in the in the game also visually references Frankenstein. Ah, right. And you had mentioned last night and it's, it just dawned on me when you were talking about the lottery that Ben goes on is that there are a lot of references you had mentioned to other yeah. to other stories within this video game, like the lottery that Am uh, subjects the village to that Benny mm-hmm. is a part of. That's obviously a Shirley Jackson reference. Yes. You know what I mean? Like but that's, then the, uh, the screens from Am and all of the caves where these people live in that story is a reference to Big Brother. Ah. And when we get to Ellen, you know, she's steeped in Egyptian mythology and has to confront Anubis, which is the person mm-hmm. who like is essentially the, looking the after of the souls of the dead. Right. Not really, but you know, in the in the game, he's he's watching the soul of the dead that is her, you know. So mm-hmm. that's that's quite interesting. But more interesting when she meets the empathetic part of Am in the waterfall, it's a very Wizard of Oz meeting. It's this giant floating head looking down on her, which I think is interesting. Right. Oh, man. Like, there's a lot. (laughs) Oh, and then Ted, even, who we should talk about because he arguably is the main character of both these stories. Right. So he essentially is painted as the quote-unquote hero because his story is essentially a fairy tale, like a grim fairy tale. Yeah. And he even recognizes the story it's based on, where it's, again, very Faustian. He has to sell his soul to the devil for power, for what he wants. And he's like hung up on a woman, like in Faust. And Mm -hmm. the woman is Ellen, which is, again, a very dissonant thought process compared to the book, Ted. Yeah. It's like, is he actually the hero or does he paint himself in his mind as the hero? And is that what Am is kind of amplifying in his brain is Ted's own inflated sense of self? Well, even Am in the game says that he's lying about everything he came from and has. Right. Yeah, he's, he's a big a con man, right? That's his, yeah. that's his past is that he's this con artist constantly pretending to be someone he's not <laughs> and his whole storyline is like essentially the root of the larger story which you're selling your soul to evil for power mm-hmm. he's given the chance to escape am forever which means he's not really able to choose that 
because we know how the book ends. Right. But like he 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 kind of grows a sense of sympathy that isn't really seen in the book. Mm-hmm. And again, it's covered in references to Faust and Dante's Inferno because he's given a more traditional hero's arc and it's steeped in Christian mythology, which is also yeah. very interesting. He has to like battle a witch and a demon. This is kind of like the catalyst that forces us to get to the ending of this game where mm-hmm. after everyone subverts Am's predictions, Am retreats into himself, which allows the Russian and Chinese supercomputers to manipulate the humans themselves to try to help them destroy Am. But their main goal is to kill a bunch of humans in cryosleep on the lunar surface. Yes, another lost tribe. <laughs> another lost tribe. I don't know what ending you got for this, but mine sucked. <laughs> mine mine was that Am was defeated, but that the Chinese and Russian Ams just took over instead and then turned me into a lump. <laughs> oh. I did I didn't get the good ending. Yeah, that's the bad ending. Yeah. I got the yeah. good ending where oh, good we on, succeed yeah. in killing both of those supercomputers as well by using the uh, entropy totem on them. Yeah. And then somehow, I forget how, but we subdue the superego, the ego, and the id of Am. Right. And free the lost tribe and start terraforming Earth so that they can return. But yes, that good old Hollywood ending. Everyone except Ted has to die. And then Ted is just there to wait for that. And I really hate that ending. I think it's a massive cop-out. And I think they really had to do it because they had to like give it a quote-unquote good ending. But yes. I think that there's a general consensus that the best ending is the ending in the book. And I have to say I agree. Because oh, yeah. it's the idea that the only escape is death from this. And it is. But also, Am's rage causes Am to violently deform ted but at the same time he loses his last plaything. right so he hurts himself in the process well ted becomes sisyphus right his life just becomes endless suffering defined unfortunately by this one moment of bravery and positivity i mean he murders people in that moment but in that moment he frees his, I don't even know if you can call them friends. They just, you know, are being tortured together. Well, if there's only five people left alive, you're going to go through some sort of camaraderie. For sure. And like, uh, you know, that one act of rebellion, I guess that's what he holds on to in the end. <laughs> but he is just being tortured forever. You know, it's the one true thing he's done. It's an act of compassion. And it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a dark tragedy filled with horrific imagery and thought processes Mm -hmm. and it's just endless torture and then endless body horror it's beautiful it's a beautiful way to contort the evils and hatred of the world into physical metaphors essentially and i think it perfectly encapsulates real fears that we all have when it comes to things like total annihilation and atomic horrors and war and you know Mm -hmm. considering i've never been alive in a time that wasn't engaged in war with America. Right. 
not that I agree that any of those wars should happen. And I think it's horrifying that, you know, the American military hides the number of civilian deaths it causes all for the sake of economic gain and neocolonial reasons. We're all just living in the machine. <laughs> yeah, if you think about the children who grew up being bombed right. for the, their whole life and watching their life crumble around them and watching people die, they're stuck in a hell and they have no mouth and they must scream because they don't have a voice. Yeah, that was beautiful. That's very true. It's the power of storytelling, the lie that tells the truth. Harlan Ellison is a master of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Obviously, I have no mouth and I must scream. The title short story of this collection is my favorite. But my other favorite story in this is called Pretty Maggie Money Eyes. Harlan Ellison said it was one of his personal favorites of the ones he wrote. I don't know how or why. I wish I knew. But essentially what it's about is about this cursed slot machine. And this guy goes up to it and keeps putting these silver dollars in and hitting a jackpot. And every time the jackpot shows up, instead of, you know, it would be three bars you know, gold bars that say jackpot. It's blue eyes looking back at him. And he keeps hitting the slot machine and winning and winning. And, you know, the floor manager goes up and like checks the machine and they think he's cheating, but he just keeps winning. And interspersed between each pull that he's doing, making thousands of dollars, you get the story of this blue-eyed prostitute you get her whole life story. And it's this tragic, beautifully dark story of a young, pretty girl who had a bad upbringing and moves to Vegas and has to dance for money and trick on the side. Who's also from Tucson. Oh, that's right. She's from <laughs> Tucson, Arizona. Shout Which, out you know. to our Arizona listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in Tucson? Yeah, I am. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's University of Arizona, right? That's yeah, and also is where Lila in Psycho in the movie version is vacationing. God. So lots of references to Tucson. Dangerous place, that Tucson. <laughs> yeah. She goes to the same casino as the narrator of our story, and she pulls the lever, it electrocutes her, and traps her soul in the machine. A lot of trap souls in machines in this conversation. Well, today. this is more of a allegory for purgatory after committing the terrible sin of greed, right? Right, right, yeah. And he eventually pulls the lever himself, also dies, and it's him trapped in the machine, and the machine is then smelted. So yeah. maybe he's trapped in the silver forever. It's all the fear of Zathura's one scene of the game going into the furnace for a child, mm -hmm. but in an adult form, you know? <laughs> sure. It's a good story. I had also mentioned yeah. that Maggie is based off of one of Harlan Ellison's old flames, and he could never bring to uh, sleep with her again or see her again after writing this, which I think is hilarious. Uh, what, a, what a guy. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your favorite? My favorite is World of Myth. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of the picture of Dorian Gray mixed with Solaris, where you have a crash landing on an alien planet, and there's a collective alien species that's a hive mind of ant-like creatures that can mirror your thoughts back to you. And there are three people in a spaceship that are stranded, 
And they slowly understand this after initially being scared of the giant horde of alien creatures. And the alien creatures learn to communicate through their own thoughts. There's a really terrible man named Rennert, and he likes to sexually assault the only woman on board because for some reason, sexual violence is one of Harlan Ellison's favorite topics, which I think is very effective. It's a very frightening and horrifying action. The main character, Kornfeld, old Corny, doesn't really like Rennert. And so he takes him out to see these ants and tells him to ask the ants to show them Rennert's true self. And they show such a image of pure evil that Rennert kills himself by taking the Phillips head screwdriver from his belt and stabbing it through his own neck. And then eventually they're rescued. But the horror is this idea that before they're rescued, these two other people are like, frozen in horror at the idea that they're going to have to go out and also go on this pilgrimage to reflect themselves back in this mirror of alien species and like confront their own portrait. Oh man. And they're afraid that they're going to see all of the flaws within their person, which is fantastic to me. I think it's beautiful. Oh yeah. It's like in Marvel comics, you got Ghost Rider and his biggest power is what's called the penance stare where he looks into the eyes of whatever fucking thug or supervillain he's fighting and forces them to experience all the pain and horrible things they've ever done in their lives. Which, you know, in Ghost Rider is cool. In this story, it's way more visceral and captures the horror of that experience a lot more clearly. I would say any of these short stories are good. Great, even, I would say. There's not a dull story. No. You know, I wish I could talk about like- Big Sam. Eyes of Dust. Yeah, Big Sam. Yeah, Big Sam, Eyes of Dust, all of these. Just good stories that really highlight the horrors of humanity and the importance of having personal ethics. I've always said Ellison has a unique talent of reaching into the recesses of our minds, pulling out our greatest nightmares and forcing us to confront them in the most beautiful language. Yeah, he's a hell of a writer. And apparently he spoke as he writes too. Yes. He famously called someone like, a petroon, which means it's another word for coward, but it's just like, oh, you dog. <laughs> what is it, a petroon or a petloon? Uh, I'm not even saying the word right because I clearly don't know it. <laughs> I would urge listeners to look up interviews. And my favorite is the uh, two part talk he did with Robin Williams because once you understand his tone of voice, it'll make reading him that much better, as well as understanding his background. Mm -hmm. He's a smart dude. Lots to learn from, either in his short stories or his interviews. And like we talked about earlier, he's just fun to listen to. You could listen to him for hours. And remember, if you like your writing and your professor thinks that it's awful, might as well deck them. Yeah, punch him in the face, (laughs) right in the kisser, and then go write some amazing stories. And then you can rub it in your professor's face for the next 20 years. Hell yeah. I wonder if that professor is still alive and what (laughs) their opinion is. I don't think so. (laughs) They would have to be like 100. They'd have to be pretty fucking old at this point. Gosh, well, that was a lot of fun. I love Harlan Ellison. Me too. We could just talk about him forever, but I guess we should just save some for another episode because he's got two more great collections, Deathbird Stories, and then The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World. Yeah, I would love to do another episode on Ellison's writing. Right. 
and sneak in some more fun facts about Harlan Ellison, who's survived bomb threats, not just bomb threats, but actual bombs themselves, multiple attempts on the guy's life. He's been shot at multiple times, was even shot at at a talk he was giving because he suggested gun control. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so horribly ironic. (laughs) It's a very American response to that. Exactly. (laughs) We hope that you have a newfound appreciation if you already love Harlan Ellison. And if you haven't read his works, we hope that we've convinced you to dive into at least this group of stories. Yeah, and play that game. Go to Steam. Play that game. It's so much fun. All right, Maya, this was great. Yeah. See you next time. See you next time. Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color, ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at infinitehorrorsmagazine.com. You can also get the newsstand edition at exaltedfuneral.com. Be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast, as well as the Infinite Worlds magazines. Find us on social media at Infinite Horrors Magazine or Infinite Worlds Magazine. Also, feel free to visit infinitehorrorsmagazine.com or infiniteworldsmagazine.com. And you can follow me online on Instagram at heavy underscore metal underscore fruit. And you can follow me on Instagram at horrorsamw. Thanks for listening.